0: This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 103, where we're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, Volume 2, in our spoiler-filled movie review. Welcome back, fellow Defenders. This is Defenders TV Podcast, episode 103, where we're talking about Guardians of the Galaxy, volume two, the brand new movie from Marvel Studios.
1: Uh, I'm one of your hosts, Derek.
2: I'm your other host, Chris.
1: Hi, and I'm your disco rollerblading other host, John. <laughs> I feel as though I've been transported to, uh, you know, the 21st century with uh, Buck Rogers and me, 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 me. <laughs> Only from our intro music, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, not, not any other reason.
0: <laughs> not any other reason good stuff well this is our first episode since our iron fist coverage the 13 episode series on netflix uh, that we released a couple of weeks ago Um doing a couple of interval episodes between our next defender series which is the defenders coming out on august 18th of this year uh we've got this guardians of the galaxy review we're going to have reviews of some of the spider-man movies leading up to spider-man homecoming which i know you're pretty excited about chris
2: oh yeah
0: going to be good going to be good um, so as we kind of go through these episodes they're not going to be released on the same kind of schedule we had for Iron Fist which was two episodes a week we're going to be releasing an episode every couple of weeks uh, three or four weeks probably in gaps in, in some places so make sure you're subscribed to the podcast over on DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes if you're an iTunes subscriber or search for us on any good or evil podcast catcher just by searching defenders TV Podcast you'll find us on there
2: and of course if you are one of the fellow defenders or you want to become one of the fellow defenders You can go over to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Defenders TV podcast, where you'll find loads of us talking everything from pretty much the run up to the Defenders. But we'll also be talking about Homecoming. There'll probably be some Thor Ragnarok thrown in there for Mm -hmm. good luck. And of course, every now and again, because it's John, John will come in and talk (laughs) about Doctor Strange. Yeah, pretty much. It's at least once a month you go, hey, you remember that Doctor Strange film? Do you remember Do you remember? Uh Hey, here's some more stuff.
1: I didn't bring it up this time. I'm impressed. I'm impressed. I am now beginning to sound like a one-trick pony.
0: (laughs) No, I'm sure we have (laughs) Doctor
1: Strange 2, we have Thor Ragnarok coming, we've got uh,
0: Avengers Infinity War coming, all with Doctor Strange connections. Exactly. There's also the regular comic book that's coming out, so loads of stuff to talk about. But yeah, come over and join us on the Facebook group to chat about all of that and more, obviously. One little quick announcement, because we're coming into May, we are going over to the UK. Myself and John of the Defenders TV podcast. Cast. We'll be going to Heroes and Villains FanFest over in London, uh, which happens on May 28th and 29th. Why would this be of interest to listeners of this show, John? Uh,
1: because uh, Yondu will be there, along with Craglin. Yes, Michael Rooker and Sean Gunn will both uh, be at Heroes and Villains FanFest in London. Of course, Sean Gunn being James Gunn's brother, Mm -hmm. um, so it should make for interesting times. And we have press passes as well, so we may be able to, no promises, of course, Mm -hmm. but we may be able to uh, organise some interviews with uh, two of the members of the Guardians cast. Yeah, that would be quite interesting, definitely. It would be cool. Certainly Michael Rucker. I I loved him in Slither, which of course is another... James Gunn film Mm uh really enjoyed that as a sort of lo-fi sci-fi kind of thing really good Um, and I was terrified
0: of him in The Walking Dead
1: yeah yeah. Walking Dead he was scary definitely (laughs) but yeah so if you want if you happen
0: to be in London the weekend of the 28th 29th of May or happen to be going to here in the Fan Fest come say hi to myself and John. unfortunately Chris won't be able to join us for this particular event (laughs)
2: <laughs> of course. Someone has to hold the fort, man. You know, there's one guy just there. Like, I literally am pushing out each audio segment of the podcast out. <laughs> like, there's a big crank wheel, kind of, you know, those yeah. old ones, like, <laughs> to chuck the airplanes. It's like, chucks ahoy! I
0: like it. Well, you, you know what? You can console yourself with watching uh, five Spider-Man movies before Homecoming, so uh, you could be writing notes all weekend that weekend. Uh,
2: yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, you could. I can, and... Well, it's, console is too strong of a word. I'm okay. like, I'm going to enjoy it all up until spider month three and then I have to watch that dancing Topi Maguire scene and (laughs) commiserations is probably more the feeling I will have at that point.
0: Well, after dancing Groot many times throughout this film, you might be more prepared for uh, dancing Peter Parker but enough about Spider-Man, enough about uh, all the rest of the stuff we're doing. I think it's time to get into our review of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2.
2: That sounds like a plan, Derek. So on our standard way would you like to tell us who wrote and directed Gardens of the Galaxy, Volume Two.
0: A really, really short list this time. Um, <laughs> it's, it's James Gunn, the writer really? and director of uh, of Gardens of the Galaxy, Volume One and confirmed as writer and director of Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, and also as John mentioned, the movie Slither, and if you haven't seen Slither, it's a great little horror movie uh, definitely much lower budget than uh, than the Guardians of the Galaxy, either of the films have had so far, uh, but it does feature Nathan Fillion and Michael Rucker um, who yeah. are fantastic
1: in the movie. Exactly it's very much in the spirit of eight-legged freaks, Ooh. arachnophobia um, piranha, you know, all that kind of stuff <laughs> Uh, comedy I, horror i kind of like yeah you know it, it's 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 a good feel feel good horror definitely and apparently it's got a
0: blu-ray release just purely because of james gunn's work on uh, on guardians of the galaxy volume one and two hadn't got a blu-ray release beforehand so go check that out it's uh definitely worth worth a uh, worth a look but
1: john do you want to tell us what he gave us with your synopsis of the movie sure The Guardians are doing what they do best, protecting the galaxy, as the leader of the sovereign race, Aisha, asks them to save valuable batteries from an interdimensional monster. As payment for their services, Gamora's estranged sister, Nebula, and the bounty on her head is exchanged. However, always looking for extra profit, Rocket can't resist to make an extra book on the side, and is caught stealing the batteries. The Sovereign attacks the Guardian's ship with a fleet of drones. As they try to escape the drones, a mysterious figure comes to their rescue as the Guardians are forced to crash land on a nearby planet. The figure reveals himself to be Quill's father, Ego. Who invites Quill, accompanied by Gamora and Drax, to his home, while Rocket and Groot remain behind to repair the ship and guard Nebula. Of course, on that synopsis, I have really kept things back. Yeah. The synopsis is much more of the kind of setup, really. Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I think
0: uh, we will go into full spoiler-filled detail as we go. So no point in uh, in blowing it all in the in the opening segment of uh, of the episode. If you are joining us for the first time and haven't joined us for any of our Defenders TV podcasts before, the way we cover our episodes and anything that we're reviewing is. By discussing five of the major points—some good, some bad—about the uh, about the movie in this case, um, so we're going to take five points to discuss. Hopefully, get through all of the uh, all the elements we want to talk about, and then we'll go through some notes potentially and see whether we defend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two or not. But Chris, do you want to kick us off? Probably our biggest point. Uh, of this entire movie is Peter meets his dad. This was something that was set up in the first movie, um, when Peter was uh, Peter was taken from Earth by Yondu uh, after the death of his mother. We knew this was going to happen. We knew he was going to meet his dad in the second movie. What did you think of the relationship between Peter and his dad, Ego, the Living Planet?
2: Hands down, this was a fantastic kind of reveal. But saying reveal is too strong of a word because this leaked ages ago, just by giving him the name Ego, we were like, hey, there's only one Ego in the Marvel Cinematic Marvel Comic Universe, mm-hmm. but he's a guy, well, in real life, he's a planet, or in real life, in comic book life, he's a planet. <laughs> how are they going to do this? Yeah. Um, for me, this was a beautiful kind of transition or, or interpretation of how this, how Ego how the Living Planet could be in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Mm -hmm. Um, I loved it. And I have to say, having the the 80s touch where they de-aged Kurt Russell... Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, really um, it was
2: good. Fanta- the flowing locks, those flowing locks were amazing.
0: It really reminded me of of things like Big Trouble in Little China, movies that I grew up with, with Kurt Russell starring in them. It, he, there's something about Kurt Russell's um, personality that I've always loved in his movies in the 80s. Uh, he's done a lot of darker movies in, in the 90s, things like Death Proof with Quentin Tarantino. He also did Hateful Eight with uh, with Tarantino as well, another pretty dark film. But in the 80s, he was the go-to guy. He was the guy with the personality, and they really captured that in that opening scene. This is kind of something that knocked on from Ant-Man as well, wasn't it, where they de-aged Michael Douglas?
2: Yeah, 100%. And th- this was one of my bits I loved because... So did, everyone remembers Tron, Legacy. Mm-hmm. So since then, they we've been getting this de-aging um, kind of effect on some big-ass stars in terms of how how they can incorporate them further into the storyline, etc. cetera. So we had we had Intron Legacy, and then Ant-Man came along, uh-huh. and then they did it with Robbie Down Jr. in Civil War. Yeah. This is coming on leaps and bounds because I think, the, especially with Star Wars Rogue One, mm-hmm. they're, they're using this technology well. I've heard people both say this was great and this was terrible. Really? And I think it comes down to very much on the edges. Does your brain accept... So when you know is old, mm-hmm. seeing them young, like how, how do you accept that? For me, this worked because if you put um, Michael Douglas or Kurt Russell into this uh, scenario and just lay left them with their current 2016 haircut and uh-huh. style... But just de-age them, it's not going to work. Yeah. Whereas if you do what they learned in Civil War is you put them in a T-shirt for like Tony Stark mm-hmm. and Robert Downey Jr. But then this one, they gave him hair. They gave him the flowing 80s locks Absolutely. that, and the clothing that actually puts you and go, okay, I understand where this is mm-hmm. and what this is doing. Um, but I think this was a fantastic reveal. I think it was a great use of technology.
0: Yeah. I genuinely was going Kurt Russell hasn't aged a day since the eighties. <laughs> <What's going on? laughs> My brain just completely accepted that this was Kurt Russell sitting in the car. You know, I haven't seen him in that many movies in the last while, and he's you know, and I, I know he, I knew he's aged, but I, I kind of think they're they're using this technique because some of the actors in the Marvel Cinematic Universe are coming close to the end of their contracts. So, uh, so now they have body reference, they have perfect three D recreations of these actors that they can use in movies forever.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I must say I really like the effect that that they did uh, here. Uh, the only thing I thought was really weird, and I don't know whether it was because we were watching it in 3D, but uh, that opening scene where the cars coming along the country road, at one point it looked like a model. Yeah. It really looked like a model. It didn't look real. It was really odd. Um, 3D IMAX is really weird for that, the perception of, uh, of yeah, distance from... from but it Train. just looked all blended together. and uh, And then I was thinking, oh, God, no. But, yeah, I mean, the effects after that didn't seem to be uh, as much of a problem. But, yeah, that was the thing that screwed my mind up. Uh, (laughs) Not Kurt Russell being de-aged, weirdly.
2: So I I purposely went to see this in 2D. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And I even noticed that. But to bring it back to the ego um, and Peter kind of point, I have to ask you guys, did you see this coming? The spoilerific ending and listeners... If you're still with us, I'm kind of, hey, we haven't spoiled too much at this point. I'm about to spoil even more. So uh-huh. please pause, go watch the film, come back. I have to ask, did you see the signpost of him being the bad guy?
1: Only once they had reached the planet. Although I was wondering where the relationship was going to go. Certainly when they started saying, you know, I I'm a god effectively and I can control matter and you know, Peter uh, showing that he had the genes and and was able to, those 70s genes, um, and and being able to control the matter in the same way where, you know, he made the ball. I thought that was really cool, but Mm. then I was, like, thinking, well, how is this going to work out? You know, is he a demigod, you know, in that sense? Mm -hmm. How is this going to work then with Kurt Russell? And I actually kind of really like the reference back to then the the plants that kurt russell shows peter quill's mom um, and and the fact that that plan opens up and and you see gamora starting to really question that there's something not quite right here and then you see all those bones and everything and it it gradually descends and i'm kind of thinking you know it's the almost the wrath of the gods in, in, in this sense and you know he effectively he's what double crosses humanity <laughs> or, or, or the galaxy well, yeah. um, and uh, I mean he's an a hole to to humanity and and the galaxy in that mm-hmm. sense but I loved the fact that he he kind of went dark and evil and um, I thought that was really really good to to have that and you know and um, it was a shame almost that uh, star Lord loses the power actually. Uh, because of that, sort of, obviously the planet being blown up and the the central brain. Yeah. Um, I thought that would have been cool if he'd kind of kept being able to keep that power. But I really like this descent of uh, Ego, the living planet, into I mean, to an extent, almost like into madness. I really liked it. And I liked how it affected Peter. I loved, you know, Don't Touch a Man's Walkman, effectively, where... Um, yeah, he really shows how low he goes with, with the, the the crushing of Peter Quill's sacred Walkman. But also then you, you find out, you know, he implanted the tumour as well into yeah. his mum's brain. Well, that's it. Like, it's, um, these are the last two things that he has as memories of his mum.
0: You know, he has the yeah, moment exactly. he saw her lay dying and volume one and volume two the cassette tapes he got from his mom you know these are the last two remnants of the biggest relationship in his life he never knew his dad before now and his dad isn't the person who's saying it's his dad and it is uh, is destroying everything about her is saying that he's the one that killed her effectively Um, i have to say personally nobody could have been better in the role than kurt russell in this role as ego because he had me totally convinced i came in actually skeptical going oh he's definitely going to be the bad guy by the time he had uh, peter on the planet, and showing him how to use his powers. I just went oh they 're doing a superhero origin of some superpowers that peter quill 's going to have from now on for the rest of the series um, and Then Peter gives them up because he realizes his dad 's evil, and his dad 's been doing this to countless number of progeny across the galaxy you know and um, that had me convinced the moment when when they realize it's, it's, a, it's a trick and he's, and he's evil, was the same moment I realized it. Uh, I got, I, I'd gone into it thinking he was going to be the bad guy and then got turned around by the great performance by Kurt Russell in this.
1: Yeah, definitely. I think, getting back to The Walkman as well, I did love the Zune reference. So <laughs> that was pretty cool. Oh, Microsoft um, must have loved that one. I would say, <laughs> yeah. Um, it carries I, 300 songs. <laughs> I think as well, it it worked because of the, the revelation of Yondu's role in that as well uh, the fact that you know Peter has kind of been thinking that you know Yondu ultimately has been keeping him from his dad for, for this time and um, that he you know what was it because of his small hands as a child he was able to pickpocket or thieve certain things that they couldn't do but I think that connection with the, the sort of the parallel story of, of Yondu going on really adds to Peter and his dad's relationship at and their discovery of each other um, in that sense.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, again, we we talk about this a lot in our kind of defenders kind of Netflix one down is that this is the burden of knowledge to a degree. So Derek, I'm like you, I went in, Oh, he's the bad guy. I had it in my head. I was like pretty much the second I saw him was like, okay, he's all nice now. He's going to turn. He's going to (laughs) turn. I didn't up until I, I didn't really, ever change that I was waiting for the flip right I was waiting for that that point and I kind of in my head I'm like so when they started showing the scenes for some reason I had already in my head kind of going okay this is how they're going to play it out and it was pretty much that Mm -hmm. that being said James Gunn is a genius for the way he did this because I still felt emotion at that point where Ego and Peter are, are literally kind of about don't touch my, a man's Walkman. I killed your mother. That that wasn't like, I feel like Kevin Smith at this point. I was like, I welled up a bit. Because yeah. I was like, you literally killed this man's mother just because you wanted him. Yeah, That's still giving me kind of emotional uh, resonance. Mm-hmm. Even though I knew he was going to be the bad guy, I pretty much was just waiting for it. That's where the props are for me. Absolutely. That's where you can go. Yeah. He is a story writer. He, he's able to kind of, for people who are new to this universe, know nothing about Gardens of Galaxy, nothing about Ego, nothing about the Marvel, they would have got, holy God, this is amazing. For people like us who probably knew Ego was going to be the bad guy, know who the character is, yeah. you're still given this emotional roller coaster to a degree, a different one than people who are just casual viewers. Yeah. That's where I was like, Okay, I I'm hats off to this. This yeah. is the can way I, you did it.
0: Can I propose at the moment that this is one of the best Marvel villains that we've seen in the movies so far? Um because they seem to have taken a bit of a leaf out of the Netflix TV shows by having the character start off uh, with a big storyline. Uh, he's the first character we see in the movie uh, as the movie opens, I believe. Um after the opening credits, sorry. Uh it's it's Kurt Russell in the car with um with Quill's mom. Uh, yep. Yeah, so he has the entire film arc. He's not a bad guy with a bad plan that you know from the start and he's just trying to execute it and the Guardian stop it. This is someone that has a genuine connection to the main characters, has a really good arc throughout the movie. And as I said, I started to believe his arc. I started to believe the story he's been selling to Peter and obviously sold to hundreds of his children from around the universe, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is horrible. Um, collector. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I think this is one of the best... Best written villains that we've seen. Even even James Gunn got criticised quite heavily for the villain in, in the last yeah. uh, last Guardians movie. Ronan, yeah, he didn't have much development in that character; he just seemed like an angry purple guy. Um, so <laughs> <laughs> so seeing that this character for me resonated so well, I'm, I'm really happy with that. I think that's a great uh, that's a great testament to the to the writing in the movie.
2: Yeah, he he literally took on board what the issue a lot of people have with the Marvel Cinematic Universe and their the the enemies the bad guys in that they're not rounded out Mm -hmm. he rounded out this character
1: yeah definitely
2: this also brings us on to kind of perfectly into our next point where james gunn didn't just evolve and kind of expand on the the evil villains and kind of learn to take that on board he also expanded on the characters we had already known about and cared about from volume one Hmm. specifically i want to focus on kind of between at this point in the the story he gave yondu and rocket
0: yeah who two
2: characters who are already very fleshed out Hmm. from the first one but he's fleshed them out even further and he's made you care about their new arc yeah and i suppose it's like it's the two i two outsiders finding their role within a family
0: yeah i was trying to work out throughout guardians one how yondu could become a member of the guardians of galaxy volume two you know we we had heard that he was going to become a central role we knew that obviously there was there's was a protagonist antagonist role between himself and peter and um, that he would be chasing peter down but i didn't expect his and rocket's storylines to intersect so much you know i thought rocket was being a bit of an ass at the beginning of this movie he steals the he steals the batteries yeah fun for the kids obviously a funny moment but it leads the whole it kicks off the whole journey for the entire movie here uh, because Rocket's stolen these batteries at the beginning of the movie, even though he's been told that people have been put to death for far less. you know. Um, I thought it was just a funny little moment at the start to have Rocket go down that path to feel that he's not worthy of other people, that, that he should be left alone by other people, and then find the connection with Yondu, I thought was a great storyline.
1: Yeah, I mean, for me, along with Kurt Russell, Yondu and, and Rocket were two of the other characters that I absolutely loved um seeing on screen rocket because um just the the sense of humor mm-hmm. what bradley cooper does just the intonation of of the, of the dialogue from him is, is really really good i mean the one thing i did miss was him with kind of groot really and yeah. um, to an extent i actually missed adult groot uh in this i totally um, agree yeah. uh, I, I mean yes okay cute Baby Groot and so on. And I don't think Baby Groot was overused by any stretch of the imagination. But I preferred the tall adult Groot, um, to be honest. I I, I miss that dynamic. But it was more than uh, made up for with the dynamic he had with Yondu. And I, I think these two are really good. I think Michael Rooker really actually... Was fantastic in this. I, I yeah. think he also carried a lot of the emotional aspects of this film. Um, you know, he, he sacrifices himself. Uh, you have that whole moment between him and, and and Rocket. You know, them breaking out of the Reapers' spaceship. Mm-hmm. All of that I thought was really nicely handled. And again, I think for for Yondu, um, sort of the story that he. Was able to finally tell to to Peter that you know he was actually trying to protect him because he had seen what his his dad was doing. Yeah, um, I thought it was really really good, and I thought this made a huge amount of additional backstory, as Chris has said, but also just the emotional side of it. I mean, I, I think James Gunn does actually really really well of making you care for characters and. Uh, really invest in them. That completely transferred over from Volume One with Rocket for me, mm-hmm. absolutely, and actually, you know, completely changed uh, my view of Yondu. So, I mean, really, I thought it was excellent yeah. Yeah. Uh, what what they did here.
2: Two bits I want to reference on this. So, I'll, I'll do it first. Is Yondu's death? Mm. So, for me, this was this was so needed. And so, such a, a, a terrible thing to need. But the death in the Marvel Cinematic Universe has not really been there. and um, We haven't had that a taste of that yet, right? In in the, the, the general sense of a, a hero. Like, Gunn kind of copped out in death in the first one because he brought Groot back to life. Yeah. So, kind of. like... <laughs> kind of to well, he pretty resurrected, okay, and we all know how bad resurrection is in the kind of comics. No one's really dead for long. Yeah, this for me was a, like planting a flag, albeit a very terrible and emotional one. So obviously we have the Easter egg with Kraglin controlling Yondu's uh, arrow, and I think that's going to be how we get Yondu two yeah, <laughs> in a later so, series so but it's still not the same as the comics where they bring just brought him back like oh he fell into a fountain of youth uh, or mm-hmm. life and <laughs> he's suddenly alive again yeah or eternity decided to bring you back etc etc
0: or the search for spock in star trek terms yeah
2: yes exactly so this one for me was great because it basically says look i'm gonna give you a redemption of a character i'm gonna make you care mm-hmm. and so you kind of like him to you hate him to like him in the first one you hate him to like him at the beginning, and then by the end of this you are you're emotionally invested in him as a character and as part of the guardians of the galaxy that family motif and then to kill him and show him having at the, the ultimate sacrifice kind of that 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 trope and I don't mean it in a bad way I mean like it's a trope for a reason because it, it's obviously used a lot, but this one works for me because and I Okay, so for our listeners, so I think it's kind of just backstory. When you're a, a child of a divorced family where you have a non biological father still rearing you, uh, as like kind of that, this is where I think James Gunn has hit a very emotional, which I think will resonate with huge amounts of people. Yeah, yeah. To a degree, is like Yondu's not Peter's biological father, but he did raise and care for Peter. Yeah. And I think that that for me personally, why it resonated hugely, because yeah. I am a child of divorce, mm-hmm. and my stepfather is still as much to me, my father, as my biological father, mm-hmm. perhaps even more, because I spent loads of time with him. And I think that's the bit where I think this is... A un- this is James Gunn telling a very unique story. Absolutely. So yeah. by saying that this proxy father character mm-hmm. who... Peter hated and thought he was doing all the wrong things, yep. was actually caring for him. I think that that really, not just by just killing him at the end and giving him that beautiful death scene, mm-hmm. if a death scene can be beautiful, but I think you understand where I'm going yeah, from, yeah. emotional impact, was just really good.
1: Definitely. It, it, definitely.
2: It, it kind of showed
1: you enough. I think what James Gunn has done here is he's taken the most grounded, most emotionally kind of, charged part of the mcu i think to date and yet it's set in space and in the far-flung reaches of the galaxy and it's a comedy with aliens and it's a comedy yeah Yeah, absolutely and i think that is one of his really great traits as a director is to get that emotional charge as you yeah. say, Chris. I mean, I think it it was really, really good. I mean, even I think with Rocket at the end, you know, the the tear coming down uh down his from his eye. Uh really, really good. And I mean to it almost to an extent that I'm I'm gonna put this out here. I actually think some of the post credit scenes, because they suddenly went into like Laffy and all that Almost kind of took away from it. Okay, um, 100%. You know, they should have stopped it there. I mean, I absolutely really like the post-credit scenes. Right. But it, it moved you into a different zone immediately after the main film. Right. Um, and I thought it was really, really good um, what they did there. And also, best insult, Trash Panda.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I
1: absolutely love that. I... I both laughed and felt sorry for, for Rocket Poor Raccoon. Poor little rocket. Um, Maybe we can, instead of fellow defenders, we can call everyone Trash pandas. Uh, no,
0: no, not, not going to do that. <laughs> uh, I do love how, throughout the emotional scenes that James Gunn sets up, how he consistently undercuts it with uh, Yondu or somebody else saying... But he kept threatening to eat me uh, for the 20 years (laughs) that he had, uh, that he had Peter in his charge. Um, And Yondo eventually says, I wouldn't eat you. I would never do that. I couldn't. I couldn't eat you. It was always just a joke. That's just my sense of humor kind of thing. Um, But you can you can totally understand this guy. This kid was kidnapped from Earth at what, 12 years old, uh, stuck on an alien spaceship with some very violent, angry criminals all around and threatening to eat him for the entire 20-odd you know, years. Um, yeah, I, I, you can totally understand. He probably believed that's exactly what was going to happen. And then for, for Yondu to tell him after that time, it was only a joke. I was only messing with you.
1: Yeah, yeah and the, those 700 jumps to get to uh, Ego the Living Planet, I thought was amazing. <laughs> and, of course, we do get to see our Stan Lee moment in, in that with the Watchers. Which was pretty cool. I preferred seeing the Watchers compared to Stanley. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. It was um, the Watchers is a
0: huge thing in the comic books. Uh, They they've been featured many many times. But I think this has been talked about a little bit in the past. But I love this. This is now canonical that. The Stan Lee that we see in all of the Marvel movies is effectively kind of like a time-jumping Stan Lee who's popping in and out of all these scenes with our heroes across across time and space, um, saying hi to them, and then disappearing back to the Watchers to tell them the story of what happened, who are totally bored by all the stories that Stan Lee brings back to them, which I think is <laughs> yeah. hilarious.
1: I mean, I'm not too sure they needed to show him again with the Watchers in the post-credits. I thought I was like, okay, and again, I think that just... That was to show the boredom. Uh, Yeah, I know, but again, it took away from the ending of the film a bit. Uh But uh, yeah, the watchers, to have them um, on screen was really good because uh, certainly, yeah, they play an important uh, watching role in the Marvel Mm -hmm. Universe. I have a very strong connection to Nick Fury. May I say? And there was um, possibly Planet Hulk as well as they zoomed past. Yes, I saw two yeah. gigantic
0: green characters punching each other yeah, uh, that's during cool. one of the 700 jumps. So uh, so possibly that was our first appearance of Sakar, the planet where Planet Hulk takes place. And we may see in Thor Ragnarok in the future. Uh, I thought that was I'm
2: cool, pretty least, right. sure it was.
0: It'd be great, wouldn't it?
2: Yeah, 100%. The interesting thing with the Stan Lee pieces as well, this was a, a very kept under wraps... In a great way, because Fox owned the Watchers as part of the Fantastic Four universe. Interesting. So this was an- another sign that more and more of the Fox's owned properties at the moment are being allowed or loaned to the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely, and the biggest example of that—if you—if you didn't know—we kind of skipped over it, and we're gonna going into notes now and and, uh, and Easter eggs. But the biggest biggest example of that is Ego, the Living Planet. That was given to Marvel uh, in trade for Negasonic Teenage Warhead, um, the character in uh, in Deadpool, the, the fantastic film that we covered before on Defender's TV podcast. Uh, that character wouldn't have appeared in Deadpool if it wasn't for this trade with Marvel for Ego, the Living Planet. So we wouldn't actually have Kurt Russell or that whole storyline if it hadn't been for Deadpool getting made.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I, I want to jump back to Rocket very quickly before we kind of go on to our next point. Because mm-hmm. there was one bit, I, I think, and John, you brought it up, that the single tear moment for Rocket. So this is the extension of the volume one movie mm-hmm. in that what we're seeing is Rocket, Rocket's um, hate, internal hatred of himself, which we see in the drunken bar scene, actually continues into this... The second film, and it's made worse as a you're shown it as a, a self sabotaging uh, trash panda. Oh, I know, but the redemption you see of this is on par with Yondu, uh, and like not just for the Mary Poppins scene alone, but the, this the redemption of Rocket where he's taking off and that tear, and he's like, it, it just needs to go go. That for me was like gut wrenchingly kind of like you're seeing the hurt on an inanimate non real kind of animated Mm -hmm. raccoon there's a bit there obviously bradley cooper's voice acting is amazing yeah really good even just the storytelling and the the showing how much emotionally invested you are in these characters Mm -hmm. that you're again kind of going yeah he has to leave his friend to die because he needs to send save the rest of the guardians
1: no, definitely. And of course, just like Mantis, you want to stroke him and, and care for him. <laughs> Unlike Mantis, you don't want it to be a practical joke from, from Drax. <laughs> um, you know, you, you really do want it. I mean, hopefully, he wouldn't snap at you <laughs> like he oh. did with Mantis. But, um, you know, here is another kind of, um, st- I suppose, a developing affiliation. Or friendship, maybe romance, even yeah, uh, between uh, between Drax and Mantis.
2: Yeah,
0: yeah, that's a, that's kind of our third point. Drax and Mantis. I really love that Drax has someone else to play up against in this movie. Mantis is a great foil for him. I think he runs through some of some great jokes within this movie. I love. Exactly as John said, I love the practical joke moment with Mantis as the kind of intro to her. Uh, I love Drax having his moment with, uh, with learning the powers of Mantis and how much it tickles him that she's been able to uh, to share the deepest secret of Peter with everybody in the room, that he's in love with, uh, with Gamora. I um, thought that was really, really funny as well. But I, I really liked that he had, he had his own kind of path throughout this movie because he doesn't spend that much time with everybody else. He tends to spend a lot of time with Mantis in this, in this film. Um, so yeah, is there a burgeoning relationship between the two?
1: Maybe I actually really quite like Mantis in this. I yeah. I, I didn't really think I was going to just from from the trailers. I was wondering, you know, what she was going to do because it did seem like she was part of the Guardians of the Galaxy as well. I was like, mm. how are they going to get this character in there? But I, I ended up really liking her. Just you know, just in terms of being an empath and because of all this emotion. Around her with with this whole kind of theme, as Chris has said, on on family. That having her sort of even going deeper down to try and expose the things that they can't really say. I thought that worked really well in the scheme of the story. Yeah. And I liked her bounce off with Drax a lot. I mean, you know, I, so I, I I thought this was a really good introduction for a character that I don't really know anything
2: about. So
1: um,
2: I was like, I was really pleased with that. Mm-hmm. Initially, when I came out of the the film, I did not like the character of Mantis. For me, she was just a cog being used in order to progress the story in two parts. One, to show the bones, and two, to ultimately distract and delay Ego using her empathy powers. On reflection, though, thinking about it more, and as I've been kind of mulling over this film in my head before we kind of recorded this, I'm more and more coming to the realisation that she was more than a cog and it was the, the interaction with her and uh, Drax and, again, again, I keep coming back to this motif of family, mm-hmm. but she was she is the adopted child coming into this family Absolutely. from an a- abusive household, if you want to call it that. Yeah. She's was taken as a child. She's been... Forced to do unspeakable things by a foster father, and she's then found this family who, just through their own dysfunctionality, uh, g- gel with her. Yeah. And I think that was for me it was like actually that there was a, there was another sub thread plot there in her redemption arc if you want to call it that, uh-huh. going from uh, aiding villainy to actually becoming part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Definitely. Again, I'm burdened with too much knowledge. I would love to see her fight because Mantis in the comic books is a bit of a badass. Really? Yeah, she, she's a really No, I loved when they rebooted Guardians of the Galaxy, I think uh, early late 2000s, and mm-hmm. uh, when they started bringing Star-Lord and Groot and all that together, um, she comes in in some of the later ones. And again, brilliant character, uh, really used well in the comics. So if I had have seen a Fike, she has a great bow staff, which is always cool. Bow staffs are cool. Absolutely. Look at, look at Donatello.
1: <laughs> yeah. And she didn't do the Deanna Troy thing from Star <laughs> Trek either, where it's like... I feel something. Yeah. He <laughs> looks at Rocket
0: while he's crying and goes, I can sense that you're sad about something. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so can everybody else, love. It's not an empath. That's just someone with Poor eyes.
1: Yeah, that's true.
0: But I, I think with the, the relationship between Drax and, uh, and Mantis, the reason why it probably stood out to me as being a really well-written piece between these two characters, who are kind of innocent in their own way, but also quite deadly in their own way because of, of who they are. The reason why it kind of stood out to me is because of the relationship between... Peter and Gamara. I think that's probably the weakest element of this movie. Uh, it's something that's kind of a bit of a bugbear for me um, watching films where you have a cast of characters. In this film, there's five members of the Guardians of the Galaxy. One of them's a woman, therefore, the woman has to be paired up with the leader of the group, being Peter. You know, I, I kind of felt like in the first movie that was played really well, where Peter was just kind of chatting up anything that moved and Gamara happened to be in his line of sight at one point in the film so he danced with her and then you know, on his side you can see the relationship developing but I kind of felt it was pushed really too far in this film to have, to have the only member of the Guardians of the Galaxy who's female having to pair up with Peter. It kind of felt like that was, it, was all, it was all written there on the, in the script before anybody wrote it. It kind of felt like it was destined to happen but didn't need to happen if you know what I mean. There's lots going on in this movie. You could have dropped that entire subplot and just had Gamara care for Peter because he's a member of the team. Yeah, um, so it was good to see another relationship in the movie, which made sense. Drax meeting someone who's innocent, and he can kind of laugh with her at um, in a
1: way, uh, and it seemed to work a lot better than having the other two characters. Get yeah, together. He, he loves her on the inside, but she's ugly on the outside, which is slightly mean actually, but nonetheless, um, it's very mean yeah.
0: telling her, "No, you're ugly. This is what this, this is what I do every time I look at
1: you.
2: That that that. Um, that's, yeah. that's pretty horrible. It's pretty mm-hmm. mean." so with Drax the usage of Drax and Batista on this it was verging on overuse but they didn't they just got it right right they 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 figured out that character and for in the cinematic universe they figured out his uses within not just the fighting but also as comedy uh, as comedic kind of hoops and kind of if you want to call it that
0: it feels like he did the lion's share of the lifting with the comedy in this film. He did a yeah. lot more of the slapstick for the kids who were in, obviously in the audience. They were loving him as well, as much as I was, I must admit. Um, but it felt like he did the lion's share of the genuine comedy moments in this film.
2: A hundred percent because they don't, you have Groot being cute. Yeah. You have Rocket and Yondu having their own story. You, you have the, the sisters, which we can get to later. Mm-hmm. And then you have Peter who was the comedic element in the first one more so. Yeah. And now he's going through his own thing. So I feel that was almost like, okay, we need more of these comedy bits. That's why I said they nearly overused it because they forced a lot onto Drax.
1: Yeah, they did. I think.
2: They just got it right. I'd love to see the deleted scenes when this comes to Blu-ray in terms of what, how much extra did they have in there? Mm. Especially from some of the trailers we've already seen. There is evidence that they cut specific parts of those that didn't end up in the final cut yeah 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 uh, which happens a lot now these days that's it. fine
0: i was really interested to read that um the way james gunn likes to set up his shots and set up his scenes is that he does actually allow the actors to do a bit of a bit of play with their lines and a, do a little bit of ad lib uh, on the set uh, and it it does come across almost like a like an indie movie an indie comedy uh, in this huge budget movie. You know, you can tell there was some um there were some moments where Batista's uh, Dave Batista who plays Drax was um was testing a few things. Um I'm sure there's loads of outtakes around this. Obviously Chris Pratt as Peter has a lot of a lot of experience in doing ad lib from his previous roles in uh, in Parks and Rec in the past. Um he's a very good kind of comedian in that in that sense. So I'm sure there's loads of great outtakes that we'll see in in, in the Blu ray when it comes out.
2: I, I'm dying to see. I think this is one of the ones where I, I'll be doing a bit of a John on it, like he did with Doctor Strange on the day the Blu-ray released, grabbed it, and devoured everything. I will think I'll be doing the same on this one.
1: Yes, you've still got that, Chris. I do My Doctor be, Strange Blu-ray. I'm missing it appreciate. when I go to bed. <laughs> well, I,
0: did, I did mention that I didn't really like the uh, Peter and Gamara storyline in the movie, but what I loved was the relationship between Kamara and Nebula. I love that they gave these two characters a storyline together. Um, having them reunited, having the, the two sisters kind of battling against each other and getting the whole backstory of what it was like to live in the family of Thanos. I thought that was a really good addition to yeah. this film. Yeah,
1: I enjoyed Nebula uh, here. I, I really did. I, I loved that moment where she she describes how you know, a little bit of her, each time she lost uh, in, in a fight to to Gamora, uh, was taken from her and replaced, you know, with a mechanical replacement. Yeah, I just thought the brutality of that, and and why she's so kind of just despicable in Volume One, and it, it kind of it helped me link back to Volume One and understand why she was, how she was, and ultimately yeah. why she's been tracking Gamora. And I, I think that was. A really good development to her story and to be put on films. A slight
0: addition to, to that description as well of their fight. She said she lost every single time as well. And that adds even further abuse from Thanos to Nebula as well. It's not only that she lost a few times and a few body parts replaced. She lost every single time versus Gamara. And that didn't stop Thanos from taking bits of her body and replacing them over and over again. Like that's, that's brutality
1: in its, in its, uh, and
0: abuse in its, in its deepest sense.
1: I think as well the fact that the two sisters do reunite as well. I think it was pretty well done. I mean, if you're thinking of the Netflix shows, you could have that really drawn out quite nicely to to, to really show the struggle of doing it, whereas I suppose in a film, yeah, they've got to bring them together. But I think it still worked, and I, I liked how she said that she was going off to effectively try and kick Thanos's butt um, <laughs> you know, and kill him. Just the hatred for her father, but also that, you know... She's been searching for this kind of acceptance and and wants that she's always looked up to Gamora and it's been her father that's kept them grudgingly apart in a yeah. sense and, and developed this hatred. And I I thought that was just a really good unexpected kind of element to the whole film that I just wasn't really ready for. And it yeah. really adds so many different layers to, you know, the Yonder and Rocket storyline peter and his dad drax and mantis all of these absolutely just layer upon layer like a massive lasagna <laughs>
0: <laughs> and a great way to set up the guardians as members of the avengers going into infinity war having gamara go and attack her stepfather or her father and have the guardians potentially either backing her up or trying to stop her from doing it. there's a great way to write them into a movie that i couldn't actually see a way for them Getting into other than they're in space and so is Thanos. So uh, I like that they're setting up the little uh, the little ground rules for what's going to happen. Hopefully in in the Infinity War.
2: Yeah, for me, Karen Gillan. This was a breakout performance for her. Yeah, and um, so she was in the first one. We didn't see much of her, and what we did, what we did see, we saw a, a decent amount. Let's say that hmm. not not too much. Um, but the, the parts she was in was I feel underutilized. Yeah, yeah. In this, she she really kind of stole the show to a degree and this kind of this other thread for me. Gamora, I think Gamora was more invested in our kind of, in the the unspoken romance piece, which you can talk about. Nebula stole this thread piece for us. Definitely. So I really think that Nebula is going to be, if not has been by this point, kind of rewritten to a larger element of the Avengers Mm storyline, I think she was going to be potentially a link to Thanos and then the Avengers I now think she will probably have a deeper uh, a deeper presence by the Russo brothers um, because they made a a lot of people, James Gunn made a lot of people care about this character and the abuse she got and how she's dealing with it, etc. Yeah, the, the sisterly love piece again. It's a family piece. It was like all I wanted was a hug, and that 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 for me again was the, oh that that line and the delivery was like all I ever wanted was you just to hug me. Mm-hmm. Um, that was like oh that's a tough, that's a tough one to put in when you're saying okay you're you're a stepfather abusive stepfather. Is pitting the two of you fighting? Okay, obviously this is, this is a cinematic universe. So your adopted stepfather is getting you to battle to the death yeah. to each time, and then cutting off part of your body. But I think there's obviously more kind of emotional subplot here. But I, I just thought it was it. This for me was a great. It was a great thread.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, and I, because I think otherwise, I think Gamora was totally underused and when she was used was used as just kind of the you know she's going to hook up with peter i think she also had a di- really difficult role in the film with regards to the the script in that she seemed to be the killjoy she was the one kind of bringing everyone kind of back down to earth that uh, killjoy is not really the right word but i think it was difficult for Gamora to really stand out from from the others because mm-hmm. of how her role was written for for this second film, um, and I think it it shined most in this connection with with Nebula, I totally agree. Um, and felt the most sort of real, definitely. I totally agree. I'm glad I'm glad they gave her this to do, definitely.
2: Uh, yeah, John. I think you kind of spoke there about Gamora being kind of used as as kind of the down to earth grumpiness of her, um, and I think that kind of they were trying to fill her as Peter's, that unspoken love piece. I think that's kind of where we should maybe move on to as kind of the last point. Derek, I'm siding with you on this, Mm -hmm. 100%. This was a forced romantic story arc that just shouldn't have been there. I know why they're doing it, because they're trying to say that this death incarnate of Gamora is... Um, falling in love with the roguish playboy but it's too early right. and I, they're trying to do it so they set it up now so that in Avengers there is going to be a dramatic moment where one of them nearly dies and so Thanos nearly kills Peter and that yeah. flips a switch on Gamora that is where they're leading it to but it shouldn't have been as smacked in the face on a brick wall bus whatever way you they were literally just like hey did you did you hear that these guys are in love yeah
0: it's like,
2: i think i remember that scene of um i think it was what was a family guy where it's like have you seen the photos of my kids and they're punching each other in the face with photos yeah it literally was that yeah. and i was like okay i get it
0: because what I get about get the characters from Volume 1 and Volume 2 is that they do love each other and they would do anything for each other. If Peter's put in danger, every single member of the Guardians will step up and go after him. So it doesn't necessarily need to be, oh, his girlfriend has an even bigger stake here. Every single one of them will protect Peter if he, if something happens to him when Thanos attacks Um you know that's what this that's what the movies are telling us overall uh, they don't need to have this romance between the two characters to make it even more stronger relationship between the two of them it just didn't feel necessary
1: no it, i mean i'm in complete agreement i think it was it was the element of Gamora in this episode that really um i i wish they hadn't done uh, yeah. i prefer to have seen more with her and nebula and, and her doing a thing of you know warning peter that there's something not quite right but not that there needs to be some kind of romantic uh connection yeah um, I, I would have, i would have enjoyed you know, if, if
0: potentially at the end of the movie Gamora and nebula got together and got on a ship to go on and take on thanos together if that was the if that was the moment at the end i'm leaving the guardians to go off and fight thanos yeah you know that would be a great way to leave it rather than going it is an unspoken feeling I have.
1: There was enough love sown across the galaxy by uh, Ego, uh, <laughs> you know? Although it does remind me of Tears for Fears and sowing yeah. the seeds of love. Of course. Just <laughs> it ends in death um, and, and destruction and big blue blobs. Yeah,
0: what did appearing. you think
2: about
1: that? So we got to see Earth with the uh, with
0: the flower rising from it?
2: So actually, here's a bit of a weird one. They made a snafu on this, right? So <laughs> this is set... Four months after Guardians of the Galaxy Volume One, okay. which places this pre-Civil War in the Marvel Cinematic Universe timeline. Okay. So when these seeds of love start in Missouri, start exploding and nearly killing people, this should have been something for the Avengers that would have highlighted would have been highlighted later on when in the sokovia chords they're talking about all this the superhuman scary weird stuff that they should have been a part of uh this should have literally happened as part of the alien highlights uh, for on earth Mm -hmm. so this is gonna have to be retconned somewhere Mm -hmm. because this is pre-civil war pre like this was a blue Massive blob is nearly takes out a town in Missouri. Uh And there's no mention of it in on Earth in any of the Avengers where it's an Avengers level catastrophe.
0: Although it did get solved pretty quickly in Earth time.
2: Yeah. So this has been called out um, over the last four or five days of kind of a post being launched in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Reddit have kind of gone down the rabbit hole as they usually do. Really? yeah like so the people are like calling out like well, why is this such a they should have someone should have caught this because like this is uh, an avengers level catastrophe in writing of the cinematic timeline i don't know about that i mean i don't know
0: whether i agree if i can answer yeah. Reddit on our podcast um but, but <laughs> so basically it's a plant that grows in the back of a car park of dairy queen um, which is still in existence. Uh, yeah, I,
1: I was surprised that that was still a functioning business <laughs> from from um, the eighties. Uh, but but maybe it still holds uh, some refuge for some nocturnal activities. Dairy Queen always knows though. Um, but then it takes over a
0: road, it takes over part of a town, and then disappears because ego's been thwarted. Um, so I'm not too, I'm not too sure whether the call would have ever gone out to the Avengers or something like this. They're usually responding to attacks from attacks from outside the universe something that builds up over time you know the the something like the incident that happened in new york that was you know that was building up over a couple of, a couple of days you know and loki came to attack and gave his ultimat- ultimatum and then they all got together and then there was the attack from the aliens to new york you know it's something that did build up over time that's how they got them all together but i'm not too sure whether this would have made their radar especially as i say they could have arrived and then the whole thing could have been gone by the time they got there so it didn't make the incident list
1: yeah maybe like i know what chris is saying but i i mean i think reddit's probably gone up its own a-hole actually um, because i mean it might make sense in that timeline that yes they would have referenced it in the avengers films but these are films lads yeah <laughs> um, and avengers came out before Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So, I mean, unless James Gunn was writing it there and then... I mean, I know they do consult and all that to to maintain consistency and continuity. I know exactly what they're saying, and I kind of get it, and I understand it. But there's also just the fact that these are coming out, you know, one after another. And sometimes... Yeah, yeah, so, I mean, I, I, I would probably think yeah it's not that important i think, it, I think it's a minor yeah.
0: I, I personally liked the connection back to it being the dairy queen where um basically behind which uh ego sowed his seed What? Um, yes. dairy, queen. just ice cream
2: yeah
1: okay
0: interesting dairy queen is where scott lang worked in um in ant-man right
2: I think you're right, That's yeah. That's right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: So, so I like that Dairy Queen got another bit of product placement, this time a little bit better than
1: Dairy Queen always knows uh, last time. Yeah, all like- better than Skittles that Groot seemed to be eating. <laughs> Were they Skittles in the jar on the seat? Oh, yeah, I pretty love Skittles. The
2: interesting thing here as well is uh, we got another quick brief cameo from uh, Greg Henry um, in this scene, uh, Peter Quill's grandfather.
0: Yes, he He's in the
2: SUV, and they just applied a bit of... Uh, decade-ageing makeup, and they threw him in as a, a nice nod, which is interesting.
1: That's really cool. That's very cool. I liked that they brought back the... Yeah, uh, that, that was actress. cool. That's cool. And then, of course, after Dairy Queen, we have the gold people, the Sovereign. The
2: Sovereign.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: One big point that we haven't really talked about. They were no. kind of instrumental in the movie from, from they were the beginning. fairly central,
1: absolutely. Yeah. Um, that must have been a lot of makeup. For the whole team there,
0: yeah. Do you know what I absolutely loved about them? I loved their spaceships. I loved that they basically were just going playing arcade games and sending out uh, drones into the galaxy. I love that they have the sound of these arcade games ones that I grew up around uh, as uh, as the ships are firing with their pew-pew-pew kind of noises.
1: <laughs> yeah, and when they get shot out of space, there's the, the Pac-Man death noise, which yeah. is really, really good. <laughs> and, oh my God, that was so cool. The big Pac Man as well at the end uh, when oh, yes. he's fighting, he, he's manipulating the massa uh, and about to you know clash with it with his dad mm-hmm. and it's just the big Pac Man. Oh <laughs> my god! I think I did like pee my pants in the cinema. I thought that was so so cool. That was absolutely <laughs> hilarious. Definitely.
2: <laughs> so I, I was really interested um, how James Gunn used the Sovereign in this. I was really pleased. It was a great way to keep the death count down. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously, the MCU sometimes get a bit of stick for the amount of death yeah. and civilian casualties,
0: or you destroy an entire city uh, being Superman.
2: Yes, the, uh, the of only course. two
0: options they have apparently in yeah. comic book movies.
2: But now we have their their drone pilots, and I thought it was a really interesting kind of use of the Sovereign. Um, it makes and- total
0: sense, though. They're saying that they're genetically engineered race of the smartest, best looking, uh, most intelligent people in in the universe. Uh, of course, they're not going to send out their, their people to kill other people. They're going to invent something that means the people keep safe uh, and the machines get blown up. That makes it makes total sense in, in the sovereigns in this universe. I thought it was a really cool idea. Uh, another thing I absolutely loved about them was their visit to the scuzzy, sleazy death planet, uh, <laughs> where... I love where the head of the sovereigns Aisha is on the red carpet that's being dragged four miles by her team, and it runs yeah. the red carpet a couple of feet ahead of her intended target, uh, the person she wants to come and have a have a conversation with. And it's kind of a, well, can you walk a little bit closer towards me because I've run, out of, <laughs> I've run out of path to walk on? Thought that was a really nice touch for the for the characters as well.
2: Yeah, no, I think that was. I love that moment. Um, it's interesting to see how they're using the sovereign in this as the way that they're setting them up for future Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 usage. Okay. And I think probably one of the bits that every other podcast is talking about and we should probably take out of our notes, post-credit Easter egg bit and bring in, is they are introducing Adam Warlock mm-hmm. as being birthed by the Sovereign in the MCU. Um, for those of you who not aware of what I'm talking about or who I'm talking about. Um, so this end credit scene where you see the Sovereign Aisha talking um, to in front of a large cocoon uh, saying I shall name, we need a better weapon, I shall name him Adam. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm paraphrasing here. This is a kind of... Uh, uh, the 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 introduction very much what we can see as being the one of the central figures to the comic books in the Infinity Gauntlet storyline
0: mm-hmm. where
2: which is being heavily kind of leaned on for the Infinity Wars um, storyline in the MCU where there was a character named Adam Warlock who is the best of the best and he can ch- had the Soul Gem and he ends up helping kill Thanos, or destroying Thanos and taking away the Infinity Gauntlet.
0: Yeah, isn't it, isn't he similar to um, similar to Vision in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that he has an Infinity Gem in his head? It's not the that was the deal, was it's, it's
2: been a mix between his yeah. head and his chest, and having it in his hand. They have kind of thrown it depending on which comic book storyline you're reading and mm. who the artist is and how they be imagined them. Yeah. The interesting bit here is that they are going to I as soon as I saw this I was like, "Oh my god, this is how they're introducing the the soul stone, the missing one. They're gun this is how they're going to bring him in." And um, as of the day of our recording, it has been confirmed by Kevin Feige that Adam Warlock will not be in Infinity Wars. <laughs> So wow. doesn't I doesn't matter.
0: Feige. I love when he uh, does that.
2: <laughs> yeah, it's just like, hey, you know, all these great things, that everyone's jumping up. No, that is wrong. So he will not be in this. He will potentially be in volume three mm. because apparently uh, James Gunn had him in volume two. This character, this central character was in this film and they just couldn't find a way to make him work. Uh Uh, within the current storyline. So they completely wrote him out and they put him into this kind of end credit easter egg that
0: great great thing that writers always do which I absolutely love they go I have got a great idea but I have no idea how to execute it so we'll just write one scene about it and we'll deal with it later and then they get the job to write the the sequel to the movie and go oh god I've got to deal with all this stuff I'm sure some of the things that James Gunn puts into the final scenes or into the movie itself um, he's kind of kicked it down kicked the ball down the road a bit kind of going oh it'll be grand somebody else will have to deal with this and now he's going to have to do it himself
2: Yeah, and that's the, the the weird thing because going back to the sovereign, which is the the way to kind of tie this all back in, I don't know if the sovereign are good enough to be a big bad mm. in the Guardians of the Galaxy, vast open space of that kind of the MCU, the Galactic MCU. That they're, they're not really, I don't know if they're going to be big enough to warrant them being a big bad.
0: You know, I think they're probably on the same level as Ronan in Volume 1. Yeah. Um, yes. But they had a little bit more comedy value about them because of how upright and proper they were versus the Dirty Guardians, I suppose. Uh, that's kind of why it worked a little bit here. Without the addition of Ego in the movie, they would have been the central villains, and that
1: wouldn't have worked for this film. No, no. It, it wouldn't. Um, yeah. I mean, the only real part of the sovereign that i liked was the post credit scene okay. because it referenced adam warlock i loved obviously their arcade spaceships that was kind of cool but i kind of didn't think the whole carpet thing worked too okay. much and um, i thought i i would agree with chris i think that as a a big bad and luckily they didn't end up being that yeah um they wouldn't have worked and i think they only kind of just worked on the periphery um you know for for being such a serious race um you know at at the beginning and you know Again, with Rocket winking from the left, from the wrong eye, I should say, um, when it, when he tries to, you know, crack a, an abusive joke about them, hmm. you know, and they're being told don't offend them and all that. So you're getting them set up as this really like proper serious race who really haven't got much humour and i just didn't think it kind of worked but it it was okay because it didn't really need to that much it just
0: kind of needs to send them on their journey really it's like the it's like the pre-credit scene in an indiana jones movie it's it's sending you off on your path they
1: might pop back up in the movie itself but they're not the big bad they're like the nazis (laughs) kind of (laughs) yes genetic (laughs) engineering but it, it it's it's the big nazi which will will be the one interesting I think that's our top five points about the movie. I
0: think that covers pretty much everything that happened in the movie. There is still loads that we could have talked about, obviously. Uh, I'm conscious that this is a comedy film and there are tons of comedy moments, but there's no point in us repeating them. Go see the film again, because that's what I'm going to do uh, to get a, a couple of laughs. There were a couple of uh, little notes with, that we have, I think, about uh, about the film. Uh, Chris, what's your first note? Uh,
2: so the first one I want to talk about is Nathan Fillion's missing cameo. Mm. This all kind of came about from social media where during pre-production and post-production, James Gunn and Nathan Fillion put up a photo of Nathan Fillion as Simon Williams in some posters, film posters. Who, and you may be asking, who is Simon Williams? Simon Williams is the Avenger known as Wonder Man. Hmm. He's, an, he's a hmm. hero by night, uh, actor by day. And um, well, he's a known—he's a known both hero and actor in the, the Marvel comics. So this is completely cut. This scene. So I was like, oh no! I, I I'm a huge Nathan Fillion fan, uh-huh. so I'm like, oh, I was I was eagerly keeping my eyes out for these posters in the background in Earth, and we saw none of it. And luckily, again, actually just as we started recording, um, James Gunn put out that. Yes, that scene was cut, but keep an eye out for Nathan Fillion as Simon Williams in the future.
0: Interesting. So ah. this
2: could be that we may get a brief hint of Mr. Fillion in Avengers Infinity War in cool.
0: 2. Yeah, interesting.
2: Another character to the roster. I know. I hear you, everyone go, oh, another one. But for me, this is amazing. I'm like, yes, I want to see the the swarmy, charismatic Nathan Fillion in the MCU so much.
0: Well, absolutely. Like I know he did appear in, in Volume One. He was uh, he was one of the aliens in the yeah. in the uh, prison breakout in uh, in Volume One. I think there was an expectation we would see him in a movie from James Gunn considering they have such a strong relationship from from the movie Slither um i i did see a couple of slags from uh, from i think it was from Chris Pratt or a couple of the other members of cast where they just kind of say um, they just invite Nathan Fillion over to the set, give him some costume, stick him in some in in a spaceship, make him talk, and then pretend that he's going to be in the movie just to kind of give him something to do. Um, you know, just just some little jokes from from other uh, from other actors out there on that. But that's really interesting. So we may we may see Simon Williams in the future. No better man to play the character. The character of the comic books is very um, is a very arrogant actor character, and I think Nathan Fillion could play that role really well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it'd be great to see Nathan Fillion in uh, in the MCU. Yeah. In anything absolutely yeah. really, really like him. I have just uh, one note. I was wondering whether the extra dimensional monster uh, at the start wasn't entirely like him, but whether it was shaman Gareth right um, the the tentacled monster that the guardians were protecting all the cocoon batteries from mm-hmm. it didn't kind of have the central eye it had two eyes, but maybe that was just a you know a change up to to the look. Um, there's one with the razor sharp teeth yeah yeah and I, I loved that scene anyway with Groot dancing around the outside whilst there was the battle raging behind him I thought that was a really great uh, little opening definitely well, Mr. Blue Sky the, 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 that was a really interesting scene and when I came out of the movie after
0: watching it I just said the balls of these guys the scene in itself with them fighting the extra dimensional being uh, must have taken so much CGI work must have taken so much money to get right and then they just focus on Groot in the foreground of the shot the whole time, dancing away to Mr. Blue Sky. While it's really cute and a great way to keep uh, the younger audience entertained, there's still a huge battle that obviously costs a lot of money going on in the background. In my head, I was going, wow, they're wasting a lot of money here in the background. They could have just had Groot doing his dance over the over the opening credits. But fair dues to them. Go bigger or go home, I think, as they as say.
2: Yeah, I loved that scene, John. Yeah, I, Derek, I, I loved... I for me okay they had to do something on par they do I don't think they were ever going to beat the opening scene with Chris Prattens as Star Lord in Volume One mm-hmm. so they needed to do something on par slightly different so it's like hey we have this over the top special effects fight <laughs> do you know what we're not even going to show you that we're going to focus on a dancing. Tree Monster.
0: Which is also great CGI, of course. Yes, yes,
2: of course. But yeah, I loved that for me. I still have that playing in my head every now and again. It's Mm -hmm. just like, yeah. Um, Just the dancing moment and then them coming, falling into the foreground and kind of stepping around or helping. uh, And then just when the speaker gets destroyed, the face on. Poor, Poor Groosh. baby Groot.
0: I like his little <laughs> wave to uh, to Gamara as well. Yeah, yeah. hi. Yeah. <laughs> She's bad <battle anyway. laughs> uh, We didn't really mention Groot much in our in our comments. I am sure there were many members of the audience that Groot was an absolute standout in in uh, in this movie. And I, as I said, this was the one character I kept seeing over and over again. Loads and loads of companies advertising their little model of baby Groot that was going to be coming out. Their T shirt, their figurine, their I don't know, a, a cup holder that had Baby Groot on it. I was terrified that this was going to be a product of the marketing team over at Disney going, well, everybody loved him in the first one uh, with that two-second scene at the end of the movie where he dances and Drax is watching. Um, so you've got to put him into the movie. Every second of the movie has to feature Baby Groot. They did a great job of keeping him um, keep keeping him just for a
1: scene where you needed a, a good gag and using him well, I thought. Yeah, I think because he was a, a Baby Groot, it just kind of fell away f- for me, the the character. I didn't particularly like the mopey teenage Groot either, to an extent. Um, like, but it, it it kind of just made the character fall away from the group, I think, um, from from previously, and certainly because obviously I know it was a rebirth, and so they had to pretend, you know, show baby Groot. Um, but you know, because he sacrificed himself at the end of Volume One. Um yeah I it was a shame I think for for Groot in this this movie for me I would have liked to have seen him fully grown back or maybe a young adult Groot or something like right. that I I don't know um I liked baby Groot don't get me wrong but I think it meant he just felt separate and right. divorced from the guardians.
0: Well, as you say, I think you mentioned it earlier on. In, in terms of Rocket, like Rocket had him as his sidekick. It was it was him and him and Groot going out to battle the universe. Now he's kind of a nanny to to Baby Groot, so he's lost his best friend, and now he has to just take care of this Baby Groot. Um, but yeah, he's a different character, definitely. Um, but he's definitely for me. He's the thing that's in there for the kids. And I'm glad they didn't just overdo it. And this wasn't, I don't know, Spy Kids two or something, uh, or Spy Kids one, or any of the Spy Kids series where I can't watch those because this is made for people under the age of ten. Um, so I'm glad it didn't. They didn't completely over uh, do it over the top.
2: I, I don't know. I, I I love Baby Groot. I'm sorry. I I really do. Don't I be love so. it. Don't be sorry. I'm, oh, I'm not I'm not sorry. It's more. I completely agree with both of you, and um, but for me they they figured out, again, this is James Gunn being James Gunn and doing it well, which is, he figured out what made Volume 1 such an amazing film, and then kind of iterated on it. Mm-hmm. Um, but so the, I think one of the scenes we didn't talk about where Rocket and Yondu were in the, the jail, and then you have Baby Group going to get the eye, and then they're looking for the fin, and he brings the desk... <laughs> And he goes, Does that look like a fin? And he goes, I am rude. Like, I, I, that, like, I full on belly laughed at these, that, that scene. That, that, and that, was that was a
1: good scene. It
0: certainly was. Definitely. And, and followed the wonderful rule of comedy, which is it can be funny and then, and then go not funny because you've seen it done over and over again and then. It can be funny again as you keep pushing through the humor of the scene. I thought it was absolutely fantastic yeah. as he kept over and over and over again coming back with the wrong thing, and you know what's going on for hours and hours. Really, really good scene. Uh, but I really liked it. But let's uh, back to notes. Just uh, another little uh, cameo in the movie from John's favorite uh, character in the Marvel universe. Harrod uh, yeah. the Duck arrives. Yay! Um, <laughs> this is much more of the eighties movie Howard the Duck, I think, rather than the uh, the pretty well observed steve gerber creation of herod the duck where he says like they say you're out of luck unless you go duck that really sounds like something from the terrible george lucas movie from the 80s <laughs> uh, really sounds like that kind of line he's not he's, he's a little bit of a, a fourth wall breaker before there was a deadpool he's he, he does a lot more commentary on society uh, as the character in the comic books i know he's got huge fans out there who i know weren't happy with his appearance in the in the first film. I'm not sure whether they going to be too happy of it seeing him in the second film either.
2: <laughs> uh, for me, I'm, I'm a Howard the Duck comic book fan. Right. And I understood they, they can't utilize Harrod the duck to the level that they want to, mm-hmm. uh, or that you would do him justice. So this was showing you what Howard, the duck is and why you can't put him in, Uh, well they kind of just showed it to the parents briefly this is why you can't put harold the duck in the mcu as is right now because it is an all-ages family-friendly amazing spectacle and when you have a lewd um alcoholic duck in the universe yeah he doesn't sit perfectly Um, (laughs) you have
0: a lewd alcoholic raccoon True, but
2: this duck does a lot more um, in between the sheets moments
0: uh,
2: than (laughs) other characters.
0: I'm going to leave that one right there. Yes. Uh, Speaking of loot, I did one little note that I made after the movie was: I absolutely loved this. I think I think this was intentional by James Gunn. I love the fact that Nebula kept call kept calling uh, Rocket a fox because she gets a great line later on uh, in the movie towards the end of the movie where she just goes stupid fox and i'm sure uh, that was intentional i'm sure that was a <laughs> uh, that was a little meet the Fockers type type gag from from james Gunn just to get past the censors well done sir well done
2: guys and i think we, we kind of briefly discussed some of these post credits things um throughout this episode. But I think there's a one or two more that we also need to discuss now in our notes. Yeah, let's just quickly so. go
0: through them. Yeah, there's five, five post-credits things in this movie. I'd heard about it before the movie. Um, there is a kind of a rule in Marvel that anything that happens after the credits is not supposed to affect your enjoyment of the movie. So they'll probably be pretty. They were probably trying to strive for what um, to avoid what was happening for you, John, where you were saying these kind of took away from the emotional beats at the end of the film. So uh, by putting some of these after the. After the credits, so the first one was Kraglin learning the whistling weapon, which um, definitely got a big laugh out of our audience. As the uh, whistling weapon goes and hits Drax in the uh, in the back, <laughs> oh sorry, the first, uh, it sticks it sticks in him, doesn't it? Yeah, um,
2: yeah. And interestingly, I think they're trying to set up now Kraglin as um, the the new Yondu in the Guardians of the Galaxy. Right, he's on the ship with Drax and the other Guardians at the end of this film. He will most likely be in. Um, whatever the fallout is on the Affinity Ward film, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Three will be happening post those films. Mm-hmm. So I think they're setting him up as potentially a cameo in the, the, the Avengers Affinity and he will be potentially a more central character in the, the volume three.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think he did a great job in this movie. I liked I liked his moment where he apologizes to Yondu for um for the mutiny that happens uh, with his crew yeah, can definitely. I just say how brutal was that scene with the crew throwing the other members that supported Yondu out of the ship oh, into yeah, the cold yeah. of space
2: pretty brutal oh, God, yeah.
0: especially for a kids movie or a movie that had that was definitely our audience was filled with quite a few young kids um, which I was kind of kind of going cover their eyes um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the next, the, the next uh, post-credit scene was the one we talked about earlier on with, uh, with Adam Warlock and then there's the big one which is Sylvester Stallone's character um, who was only seen a little bit in the movie and I was wondering why you'd cast someone like Sylvester Stallone in a role like that where he only gets about two or three scenes uh, he did get the big scene of uh, of the funeral and leading the funeral for, for Yandu and in this post credit scene he gets together with a number of the other captains of the Reapers yeah. so I, really I was mean, trying to work out there definitely seemed to be a lot on this. The camera was focusing quite heavily on each individual character, so you knew who they were.
1: Yeah, good old Sly. Sly Sloan. Mm-hmm. I kind of enjoyed his little cameo yeah. uh, bits, really. Um, and, of course, he gets to lead a team. So, just because I have to look it up, I will yeah. I, I will
0: say, these are the original Guardians of the Galaxy. This is the team that surrounded Yondu. So, we've got uh, Staker Ogard, who's played by, uh, by Sylvester Stallone. We had the Crystal character and um, that's Martinet Tanaga I think is the way you pronounce it uh, that's played by Michael Rosenbaum who was uh, who was uh, in Smallville oh, Smallville
2: yeah cool. Lex, Luther. Lex
0: Luther in, in Smallville and uh, then you had Ving Rames who's a really pumped up uh, kind of hulking looking figure uh, that's Charlie 27 of the original Guardians uh, Michelle Yeoh from Chris the movie we mentioned more than anything else during the coverage of Iron Fist Crouching <laughs> Tiger yes. Hidden Dragon
2: yeah yeah the Marvel guys love her absolutely and she plays Anita O'Gord in yeah. this, which interestingly is the wife of Stokhar O'Gord herself, and also his sister. I don't think that that'll be coming into the MCU <laughs> in, uh, going forward, but that is it in the characters in the comic books.
0: Yeah, I'm not sure about that either. Um, then there's Mainframe, who kind of looks like a Cyberman from Doctor Who, the, the kind of metal uh, character. That was voiced by Miley Cyrus in the movie, very wow. weirdly. Uh, and the final one, because I totally missed this character in the movie, is a character from from the comic books called Krugar, um, who, when asked to join together, join forces as a mm. member of uh, a member to go off with Sylvester Stallone's character, gives a thumbs up by using the magic from Doctor Strange. Yes, interestingly. Kroger in the character, just for you, John, I did finally say today. I know, um, Kroger in the comic books is a character who is met by Doctor Strange, who's been defending Earth for about 200 years, and goes and meets Kroger on another planet, and trains him in the Mystic Arts. Yes.
2: yes. Quite all, all roads lead to?
1: Guardians of the Galaxy, the originals. <laughs> With Doctor Strange. All, all roads, apparently, lead all the way back to Doctor Strange. Yeah. Well, in this world, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. Like I like, I like that. Like it's, it's a nice little bit of you know talking of continuity and so on with the the blue blob previously, but you know, just having that, the same spell pattern, you know, forming and so yeah. on. That that's a nice, uh, nice Trust little touch. It. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I, I I love this. So I'm very interested to see where they're going to take this original GOG g-o-t-g uh (laughs) kind of group putting the band back together this this is too big of a list of actors
0: Mm -hmm. to just be a
2: passing cameo
0: Big um
2: so they are going to use these characters again i loved the this um
1: i would uh, say it could be cannon fodder for thanos
2: I think you're right. I think they're, that's what they're going to do. I think that's... They, they're introducing... Saying that now, I love these characters. I've read a lot of those storylines. Right. Um, and I love Michael Rosenbaum in his smallville roles, and he's actually stand-up comedian now, and I, I follow him for a lot of stuff there. Right. And Michelle Yope, I'm I'm a huge fan. So I'm dying to see what they're going to do with these characters going forward. I know, and
0: sadly... Kevin Feige also said they are not going to appear in Infinity War. This, I feel, he's trolling us with. There's no yeah. way these, these characters yeah. are yeah. too big, and we usually do get uh, a bit of one of the one of the credits is usually a bit of a lead in to the next movie.
1: Yeah. It's like, like it. yeah, Kevin. So Fantastic Four is <laughs> not going to be in Infinity War either. <laughs>
2: or, or it's going to be that these guys are hunting Adam, and Adam ter- teams up with. The current are or, 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 or now new, happy Guardians of the Galaxy.
1: That current. would be hilarious. A case of mistaken identity yeah. by Adam Warlock. Not so yeah, clever now,
2: Adam. <laughs> yeah, there we go. So it's a, I, I love this. This was, for me, a perfect Easter egg. That was yeah. a great one. A it great was one. really good.
0: Um, the next one is the one we already talked about, Stanley and the Watchers, as they walk away from him, leave the spaceman sitting on uh, on his comet alone, uh, being ignored by the Watchers.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then, of course, the, the final one is Teenage Groot and Peter Quill. It's so unfair. Or <laughs> I am Groot. I, yeah, really, I, I really thought this was quite funny. I know you didn't particularly like it, John,
0: as you said earlier on. I thought that was quite, that was a, quite a funny little moment to have. Uh, you got to have what's happened to Groot after the movie. He's obviously going to grow up, but I like that Peter Quill is now, uh, is now mommy to Groot, <laughs> um, really <laughs> criticizing his bedroom for being messy and telling him to get off the video game, which Peter Quill was obviously that kind of kid.
1: Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's just like I love the post-credits uh, scenes and but also sometimes I can just kind of go, oh, why, you know? And I I think whether they needed five, I love the Sylvester Stallone one. I love Kraglin learning the Whistling Weapon and the Adam Warlock. Really like that. I think the other two, I just didn't really need to see. So do I prefer three as opposed to five? I don't know. I mean, I, I just think... I'd much prefer them when they really kind of give a hint, um, and it, Guardians Volume One didn't really do that either. But look, <laughs> that's just me. Three out of five at that. Yeah, I just
0: wanted to make one little note about the credits at the end of this movie. Uh, so the five five post credit scenes. <laughs> this is a way to keep people in their seats. There's something going on on screen all the way throughout these credits. So many of the Marvel movies have uh, have got designed um, fonts for their for their closing credits. Like for example, Iron Man three had that great uh, great song for the first minute and a half of its credit, which keeps you interested and waiting for that post credit scene you you want to watch. And then it goes to a black screen with white text on it, which you have to sit through another five or six minutes of to get to a, a post credit scene that may not be that good. Um, spreading these five post credit scenes out along with some cool little stuff that they were doing in the credits, like I caught, don't know whether you did, Chris, um, I Am Groot kept appearing in the credits and then transforming yeah. into the name of, of somebody in the cast or somebody in the crew. Uh, I thought that was a great way of of kind of a bit of a game for the younger kids who are being made stay to watch all of the post credit scenes. Uh, on either side of the screen, we got uh, a dance from both Gamara and from Nebula, showing that they can in fact dance, regardless of what Peter Quill says. Uh, thought that was great. Uh, we had Cosmo appear, the uh, the uh, Russian dog that we saw in on Volume One. We had him appear on screen, uh, and we also got the first appearance of Jeff Goldblum's character from uh, the upcoming um, Thor Ragnarok appearing in the post credit scene. So, uh, or in the in the credits. After the film, rather than even a post-credit scene.
1: And our final, final note: we've completely forgot the Hoff, David did we Hasselhoff, the or Hassel Yeah, like was uh,
0: What a brilliant, brilliant idea from James Gunn. I really loved the kind of throwaway line that uh, that Peter Quill carries a photograph of David Hasselhoff <laughs> around with him. Tells all the kids that he's off filming Knight Rider and off filming um, <laughs> other other TV shows. And then it turns out that uh, that ego could have transformed himself into David Hasselhoff for the entire film and does it uh, right at the end of the film. So uh, great, great fun.
2: I can't say any more than that you guys have said about this. This for me was just... Uh, I, I think it's probably best to kind of get into our wrap-up because I think any, if I say any more, I'm just going to go on a, a, a sprouting lovelies at James Gunn and the amazing things he's done. One thing I do want to say is this is a very clever way to credit and show people the amount of people who worked on these films and get you interested in actually, because you're right, before post-credit scenes were a thing, it was just black screen, everyone left the cinema as the the credits rolled, and you wouldn't care who the grips and the second gripper was or the light guy or all these runners. And uh, just before we go into our wrap-up, did you see the the line about um, no... Animals, Groot's or raccoons were harmed in the filming of this film.
0: I like it. Yeah,
2: I, nice I thought job. it yeah. was a nice and it was a nice again play of the the kind of standard things you could see.
1: Yeah, and there was a there was a key grip called I am Groot in the film <laughs> as well.
2: Yeah, it's so strange, strange. This I am Groot. I think it was like four different <laughs> roles throughout the film.
0: Definitely had a lot of involvement in the film. So, Chris, I think it's time to get onto it. Do you defend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two? <sighs>
2: No. Of course. I can't I can't even pretend. After you listen to the podcast and we spout on about how much this was an amazing this was the perfect comic book follow-up film. The sequel. This is what it was. So so many uh this was exactly as you pick up a new issue of a comic book. So you volume one was you finished that comic book or you finish that trade paperback and you cut it. This was literally like we opened the second Volume 2 trade paperback. They picked up with the action, they picked up with the storylines, and they they just, it literally continued four months later. It literally could have been a panel going the end scene of Volume 1 to the end scene of Volume 2, or to the opening scene of Volume 2, and go four months later. Mm -hmm. Like, they could have done it. This was just a, Ah, I praise him for doing this. Now, it's one of the only sequels for a comic book that i think works in the mcu i'm not counting winter soldier because that was an amazing um that was that's a different kettle of fish that was more i can't even put it in the same boat they two, they're two different ends of the spectrum of amazing but i think it was probably one of like if you count iron man 2 age of Ultron, it's still better than those okay so it's up there this is this film now is up there in my top three marvel cinematic universe films Wow! until we start getting into some of the um, the the next um the ones that are coming like homecoming right um (laughs) for me i i really was so happy the first volume the first film was about trauma the, the the trauma of getting ripped from your family of death, of uh, all that type of thing. There was so many threads around trauma as being a central point. This was a central thread about family and the growth and acceptance of family. And for all the jokes, for all the action, for all the, the, the mistakes in terms of unspoken love, it worked. It worked in all the plots came together all the threads that we wanted to see in a sequel were made. And I think I, I can't tip my hat more to James Gunn. He has done something that not a lot of people can do as a filmmaker, as a writer, as a director. He's done... He's made a fantastic sequel on par with his opening title of in the MCU. This is as good, I think, as volume one. Um, and yeah it had some flaws sure but every other positive triple 10 x's uh, weighs those uh, those negatives so yeah I completely defend this uh guardians of the galaxy volume 2 but now let's see our groot hate teenage groot hating <laughs> John do you defend guardians of the galaxy volume 2
1: I do defend Guardians of the Galaxy volume 2. Um I would give this four Hasselbrow Trash Pandas out of 5. <laughs> um, I absolutely loved the comedy in this um and I I think importantly for me James Gunn built these characters um up and on from Volume 1 to the extent that you kind of can look retrospectively at Volume 1 and see certain aspects like with Nebula and and her journey then in this film and give Volume 1 a new meaning and and really expand on these characters in this second film. And actually, I think for me, other than, say, uh, Gamara, I think he did that with absolutely... Uh, all of them. You know, with Peter Quill and his um and his father, the living planet Ego, uh with uh Rocket Raccoon and, and uh Yondu with with Drax and and the the new character Mantis um with Nebula obviously all of these to me really just added more um depth to these characters and I, I, I would agree Chris, I don't think it's something that maybe has been done in quite the same way. I think it felt the most emotional, most grounded, most familiar in terms of that emotional uh, connectivity uh, to to a Marvel film. And yet it's set out in space. Um, and I, I, I think it, it it's the freedom that, in effect, sci-fi can bring to you uh, as a director. You're not having to worry about, um, you know, the, the norms that occur on Earth. Listen to me being intergalactic but (laughs) i I really enjoyed this film yeah there's a few negatives for me i'm not a baby groot hater um at all but i i I just actually it was because the others were were being developed so nicely i mean even gamara with her relationship with nebula that because he was um baby groot it he didn't feel connected i mean and that that was the only thing really that pulled it away for me from um Uh, for baby group but i again it was great to see the watchers it was it was great to see um even the return of howard the duck i mean you know at the end of the day i'm not his biggest fan but sure you got kahuna's james gunn and you, you you chucked him in again like i wasn't expecting to see that um having Adam Warlock at the end, the nod back to the originals. I mean, he did a lot with this movie uh, and it worked. Um, It really, really did work. And I think, yeah, we've seen probably the best bad guy with Ego the Living Planet in the MCU, uh, which is really, really interesting. So uh, for me, I absolutely defend uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2. So Derek, on that note, are you going to hit us with a bombshell? Who knows? We'll find out. Derek, do you defend Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 2?
0: I'm not going to hit you with a bombshell. I do defend this movie. But one thing we didn't really talk about this is the first time we've covered a comedy on any of our podcasts. Uh, Throughout all of our history on TV podcast industries, Gotham TV podcast, all of our Defender shows, we've never done Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 1. And it's a very difficult thing to approach covering a comedy because we could just sit here and talk about the funny jokes that went on. And that's one of the things about this movie. I I went in expecting a comedy sci-fi movie. I came out with loads of thoughts about the characters that are in this movie and how well they're dealt with. I did laugh at a lot of scenes, but I think there were a lot more uh, missed jokes than hit jokes in this film. Um, I think there was a lot of, of... a lot of the humor, or a lot of the humor that I missed, was aimed at people of a younger age group than myself. So, um, so that was fine. I I was able to sit back and and let a really good sci-fi film wash over me uh, a bit, and really enjoy the characters and catching up with the people from from the first movie. So, um, so I definitely defend it, but I think you guys have said most of the reasons why I defend it. Um, in the, in the same way, I, I I totally agree with both of you guys. Everything that that James Gunn did here, and everything the cast did, and everything that everybody that worked on the on the movie did, I felt the the money was visible on screen from the very first moment where they seemed to throw it out with uh, with Baby Groot dancing in front of a hugely complex CGI scene um, right the way through to the end at Yandu's funeral. And um, all of that was money on screen. It was beautifully put together as a movie and really enjoyed it for that sense. But I was surprised that we didn't get as much of a comedy film as I was expecting uh, going into the movie. So that's our defense out of the way. We do have a little bit of feedback uh, for this episode. Chris, do you want to read our first piece of feedback?
2: Sure. We have a known O'Neill, another O'Neill, a Robbie O'Neill, giving feedback. It was brilliant. I got pains on my side laughing, even afterwards at home, thinking about it. And I have to say, Robbie, I'm exactly the same. I was walking home and I was still chuckling away to myself, kind of just thinking uh, these one or two liners, especially... The eyeball,
0: <laughs> definitely. Uh, thanks for that, Robbie. Uh, really good to hear from you. Our next piece of feedback comes from Jeff Childs He said, "I saw it last night at the drive-in with the kids. It won unanimous praise. But how freaking strong must Gamora be to hang on to Drax while the ship crashed? Uh, yeah, you know, you don't get much framing of that. Uh, Gamora does hold on to him as their as the entire ship is crashing." Um, but I suppose if she won every single fight against Nebula, Nebula, she must be pretty strong, right?
1: Yeah, no, she's got uh, she's got a few uh, few guns, definitely as uh, Gamora. Um, thank you, Jeff, for that. And Rebecca um, also said on Facebook, "I thought the humor felt more forced. The female characters still had little to actually do aside from Nebula. Drax was kind of mean rather than funny or literalist. Like Yonder and Rocket." Thought Star-Lord more dickish too than first. Music great but very on the nose. I liked but didn't really love and now I've seen it three times to test whether it was grumpiness on my part. End credit scenes and Nova hints also great. At least Nebula and Gamora had some good moments. And Nebula gave Thanos more character development than any of his appearances so far. I cannot agree with you more on on the aspects of thanos rebecca definitely Uh, to date i have been absolutely unsure about thanos he's just sat in his chair looking a bit silly and this really just you realize why he's so feared now you realize the meanness at his heart just from nebula uh really good point i'm glad they did that actually for thanos yeah yeah, and on the on the music, I don't know whether it's just my age. Uh,
0: a lot of the songs fe- feel feel like songs that I've heard multiple times. Stuff like "Father and Son" I know really well. You know, this movie is aimed at you know fifteen to twenty five year olds and and people above, but a lot of them won't have heard these songs. So you know, first time hearing "Father and Son," they may think it was written for the movie. <laughs> they may not know the song. You know, I knew it instantly the minute I heard it. I was going, "Oh, okay, obviously that's going to be the song played for." Peter and, and Eagle, you know. Uh, they are father and son, and there's going to be a storyline around the song, you know. it's uh, I, I do understand, but I, I, do, I do think the choice of music for the film has made a great soundtrack. I've definitely been listening to it a lot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And Coneman Stevens um, says, Yonder and Rocket totally stole the show for me. The emotional beats and comedy and their scenes were the best out of the movie. I did think the cast was a bit weaker on the whole, like outside of Yonder and Rocket and Groot. The rest had its moments but it kind of had to jump between them all, doing all their different scenes in different, but didn't do it so well. He goes on to say, the first one worked better because they were together for most of the movie. The family themes within the movie, however, did really bring it all together for me, though, and made me really enjoy it. And finally, the minute-to-minute comedy didn't always work for me, but there was huge positive reaction to it, so I can't blame them for it. I still did laugh plenty, however. I actually haven't laughed out loud so much in a movie in ages. So I suppose even for the duds, the comedy did work. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, there's some really good moments um, of comedy in in this. I think the family themes worked well for this movie. Uh, And I'm absolutely with you, Coleman, on Yonder and Rocket being a really uh, great, Pairing with their connection in, in this movie.
2: Yeah, I I I kind of have to just agree with the majority of this too. I don't know. I, I, I can see where you're coming from with the, the, the jumping between different scenes and them not being together as being a potential issue. I think that was something we're always going to have to face with. When you have a, a team of five, you're not always going to be able to have the team together in future films. Mm-hmm. But I think they handled it well. But yeah, I talked about it throughout this episode. The humor for me worked. I think you said it best, Eric, when we talked about the Groot and Yandu and Rocket scene, where he bringing the desk and everything. Mm-hmm. For every one that fell, there was another two that worked. Mm-hmm. And you, they, they did it as like, okay, we're going to plow through. And even if you would hit one dudge you're going to knife the next one.
0: Yeah, and I think that's a fine way of doing it. Absolutely. Thanks so much to everyone from the feedback. Most of that comes from our Facebook group over on facebook.com slash groups slash Defenders TV podcast, where we're there pretty much every day, uh, answering questions, posting some stories from Marvel, as do our as do our members of our community. So come over and join. I'd uh, love to talk to you while we're on a little bit of a hiatus after this episode. Uh, coming up, we do have our Summer of Spider-Man starting pretty soon. Uh, within the next month, we should probably have our review of, uh, of Toby Maguire's first Spider-Man movie. Uh, make sure you subscribe to us over at DefendersTVPodcast.com slash iTunes to get the episodes as they come, o- come out. If you want to get in contact with us otherwise, you can email us at feedback at DefendersTVPodcast.com and we'll let you know what
1: we're doing. I think you've said about everything, Derek.
2: Absolutely. And most importantly, guys, thank you so much. But remember, please subscribe at defenders. Tv Podcast.com forward slash iTunes. And if you're enjoying the content we put out, review us, give us some ratings, tell your friends, tell your grandmother, tell your grandmother, <laughs> bring your grandmother to Guardians of the Galaxy, and then tell her to listen to us so that, and then send her all the way back to the beginning of Daredevil season one <laughs> and let her binge listen to us. Because grannies love Marvel Netflix too. Yes. Um, and of course cinematic universe, but more importantly, Marvel Netflix. They've had your enough granny of... should load this.
1: Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Grannies have had enough of Radio 4. Yes, yes. <laughs> Just like Radio 4 for them. Uh, and
0: again, just to remind you, if you're over in the UK, in London, uh, in, at the end of May, uh, myself and John will be at Heroes Villains Fan Fest, hopefully saying hi to, uh, to Yandu and Sean Gunn.
1: Yeah, absolutely. As always, fellow Trash Pandas, it's been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you for joining us, as always, and we will speak with you next time
2: hopefully we'll see you in the next 30 days or more for summer of spidey this is my turn time to shine where you will get to get all my encyclopedic knowledge of spider-man and potentially the cinematic spider-man 2 so who knows i can't wait to see you guys can't wait to share my this experience with you and of course all roads lead to not dr strange this time but of course spider-man homecoming Spider-Man's true introduction into the MCU. So I hope you will share our Summer of Spidey with us. Tell us what you think of course of all the previous Spider-Mans and then join us in July for Spider-Man Homecoming followed swiftly by the one thing that has led to the birth of this podcast that we've been waiting for the Defenders in August. Yes,
1: Defenders of the Earth. Oh no, that's a different (laughs) cartoon.
0: Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you again next time. Bye.
2: But I'll road lead to not dr strange this time but spider-man homecoming in august just before defenders
1: absolutely good old piece of parquet oh hang on what chris you did that
0: the yeah. wrong way around spy spidey I... isn't in august it's defenders <laughs> in august
2: in july 1st Sp-
1: yeah. you're not Spide- a spider-man fan <laughs> at all chris <laughs>
2: i know <I'm> just <laughs> too much in my head